This week, I'm delighted to say we are joined by two-time Olympian Colin Griffin. Colin is now involved in coaching himself and has a range of expertise in a high-performance setting. Throughout the show, we talk about how he brings his own experience as an athlete into his coaching style, the importance of adapting your communication style to your audience, and bridging the gap from academic research to practical application in a real-world setting. Excellent discussion. Colin has a great way of simplifying sports science that everyone can understand. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. Colin, thanks a million for coming in. Um, you've obviously a huge amount of experience in high-performance sport, and you're now transitioning to the more on the coaching end. So uh, I was hoping we might jump in and maybe talk about that journey from athlete to coach, I suppose. Yeah, uh, thanks, Stephen, and Nigel, for having me on here. It's a, it's a pleasure to be part of this uh, podcast. Um, yeah, I suppose I've had a, a fairly unique uh, career path um, coming from being a um, competitive athlete, um, you know, while also, I suppose, combining a, a coaching career as well. And then, I suppose, um, since I retired from elite sports, become more involved in coaching um, through my, my day job as a strength and conditioning coach um, at the Sports Surgery Clinic in Santry. And then I also do some coach education work with Athletics Ireland and work with a lot of athletes um, on an individual basis. And I've had a small bit of experience as well in, in a team sport environment. So, um, yeah, look, I suppose, um, I, suppose I, I go into things with an open mind and, um, you know, try to try to broaden my skill set and knowledge as much as I can, I suppose, while still having a few specialist areas. Okay, um, I'm interested, uh, you obviously competed at the highest level and when you went into coaching then, did it give you a, hu- a, a much deeper understanding or maybe um, a, a better insight into what the coaches were trying to do with you back then or, or maybe uh, some frustrations that would come with that? Yeah, I suppose my experience in competitive sport um, definitely influences me um, in different ways than what I do now. And, and I suppose in terms of um, mistakes I made uh, in my time as, a, as an athlete, and I was self-coached a lot through my, my own career as well, which um, had some good outcomes and some not so good outcomes. So um, I suppose at this stage of my career now, as I'm kind of becoming a, a more of a, a coach and practitioner, I suppose I'm a lot more reflective of things I did early on and how, that, how I might do things better with the benefit of hindsight, which is great. Um, but I can't, unfortunately, can't rewind back the clock. Um, but um, yeah, like, I was, as I said, I said, I was self-coached a lot through, throughout my career, but I would have had some coaches um, early on um, and throughout my career um, that would have influenced me as well. Um, my family background, I suppose, was, was a heavily influenced. Um, both my parents were involved in athletics. My mother was a runner. My dad was more involved in, 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 in coaching and, and the administration side of things. Um, so I grew up in that environment um, where I was at the age of you know, 9, 10, 11, reading coaching manuals that were lying around the house. Um, and uh, you know, my parents, I suppose, having, my mother having an experience of being an athlete herself, um, and my dad, I suppose, seeing a lot over, over, over decades of, of experience, you know, they, they were probably careful not to push me too much at a young age. And in fact, most of the drive came from myself. And I found that my parents had to try and hold me back, um, which was difficult at times. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, that was a big influence on my, on my um, I suppose, passion for the sport um, as an athlete and as a coach. And I suppose things kind of evolved from there. OK, you've said it twice now that you've sort of self-coached yourself. Uh, could you maybe talk us through how, how that would have looked, if that makes sense? So I said there's a lot of people out there wondering how, how, th- how that would actually work. Yeah, um, and it's certainly not for every athlete. Um, and I suppose that there's, there's pros and cons of it. Um, I 
I suppose my parents towards towards the uh, towards my late mid to late teens. I suppose they let me have, a, or I suppose encouraged me to have a more active role and in, 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 in input into my own training. Um, and I suppose gave me a little bit of time and space. Um, so towards my the end of my junior career, I would have been self coached and would have qualified for World and European Juniors and, and set Irish underage records. So things were were going well. But you know, it's still important I think to have that objective you know voice there to you know challenging some things. Um, tell you what you need to hear rather than what you want to hear. Um, and then I suppose towards the end of my junior career, my early senior career, I did I was working with a coach called Michael Lane, who was fairly renowned in our event. And again, he certainly helped to to shape things a little bit. Um, I suppose um, I had a bit of structure to my training, um, and I learned a lot from him. And I suppose in my um, early twenties, early to mid twenties, I was back coaching myself again. Um, I did have a few. Um, bumps along the way as most athletes do in that kind of development age category when I was kind of transitioning you know through my college years um, when I graduated and became a full-time athlete and the year two where things weren't going well but I managed to navigate myself through that um, made a breakthrough as a senior athlete getting the A standard for the Olympic Games in 2008 and then the Worlds in 2007 and um, you know so that that I suppose was working out well but um at the time, I suppose when I, when I was on the high performance system, the then director of coaching, I suppose, encouraged me to try and um, address my coaching situation and maybe encouraged me to seek maybe help overseas. So I was spent a few years training in Italy under an Italian coach there as well, who was quite renowned, and I learned a lot from him as well. And I suppose towards the last year or two of my career, I was, I was back kind of self-coached again. But I mean, I suppose it's easy to draw correlations here, but all my best performances as a senior athlete and as a junior athlete were when I was self-coached okay. but at the same time and um, there were things I did back then or things I could have done better you know if I look back on it now so and it's not something I would encourage um, every athlete to do you know it probably suited my, my personality sometimes but at the same time it's still important to have someone in your corner that you trust and you can bounce off and that can challenge you at the right times yeah I'm glad you said that now because mm. I was just thinking there'll be a lot of people there now ditching managers and coaches no. all over the place <laughs> um, so uh, you talked about coaches that influence you would, you would they have influence now on your own coaching style in terms of how you coach yourself um, yeah look I mean I suppose I've in my work and in my different parts of my career I probably um encountered a lot of I suppose people down the years coaching figures and, and high performance figures and, and, and service providers who I've learned a lot from and um, you know took something from I suppose so there's a lot of people I suppose who, who have shaped my my, um, my my coaching career and how, and how I carry out my practice on a, on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis um, so I suppose there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a blend of influences there um, which I think is a healthy thing yeah absolutely um, I, I can't remember someone said it before that the they consider themselves like a magpie coach and they, they pick and choose the, the different attributes and, and things that would work for them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so in terms of your own coaching now, are you mainly involved in the SNC side or are you coaching athletes as well? Yeah, a bit of both. But my day job is an SNC coach at the sports surgery clinic in Dublin and, and a lot of my uh, workload is, is on the injury rehabilitation side of things. So I suppose 70, 80 percent of my uh client base will be injury rehab patients um, and then I'd, I'd a, a small few then who, who I work with for performance S&C stuff and, 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 and uh, sports science inputs so and I suppose I have a good mix there because I work a lot with say you know small few elite athletes a lot of say club athletes general pop, uh, recreational athletes and right down to general population so who are maybe not as sporty but have an injury that's and, and I suppose you learn a lot from them too because you've got to adapt your coaching style simplify your message um, you've got a very very short sensitive window to try and get them on side um, so you got to communicate well and, and, and that challenges me too in, 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 in a healthy way on a day-to-day basis so I try and embrace those, those challenges and then obviously when you're working with elite athletes things are, are I suppose a lot more and um, there's a lot more on the line I suppose things are a lot more um, cutthroat and 
um you know so you got to be good in your decision making be very very clear on, on those things and and also to make sure that you're um in tune with the athlete and um you know that there's, that there's a good i suppose trust and, and, and built up there yeah so I, I am interested and i want to come back to the s and c thing in a little bit later on i'm really interested in i suppose we've had loads of people on this show who've been involved in a team dynamic um but in terms of athletics uh, that that coach athlete relationship i suppose it has to be one-to-one but i, I as my understanding is it's a lot of team training as well in terms of it's within a team i was wondering maybe you could touch on that a little bit yeah i suppose i um I still think it's important to have that that kind of team around you, that multidisciplinary team, because um, a coach can only do so much. And I think a co- I still see the coach as being that kind of master generalist in an ideal world, being master generalist who has a broad grasp of everything, um, has his own special, his or her own specialist area, um, but being prepared and open-minded enough to bring in other experts who may fill a performance gap in that at least, whether it's you know your your physiotherapist, your sports med doctor, your sports scientist, your biomechanist, your SNC coach, performance analyst, or whatever. Um, and I suppose it, you look at your big rocks and small rocks. You know what are the, what are the big things that can influence the athlete and address their their their, their most obvious shortcomings. And I suppose you try and prioritize your 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 um, team and expertise around that. Um, and trying to address those things as a, as a priority and then the other things then can be I suppose addressed afterwards on a, on a, on a priority basis um, so that's important and I suppose the one thing even though I was self-coached when I did move to University of Limerick where I did my first degree um, after my leaving cert and when I moved down there I suppose um, I there was no real setup as, as such like, like like we have now with, with the with the Sport Iron Institute um, but there was the National Coaching and Training Centre then which was I suppose the Institute of Sport on a smaller scale back then and, and there was some good people there um, and I was quick enough to build up a good team of you know physiotherapist um, Johnson McAvoy who I worked with throughout my, my career um, physiologist such as Carla McManus who was um, who is now working um, in New Zealand rowing um, you know a sports medicine doctor and, and, and some of the biomechanical people there as well and, and, and they were a big help to me um, and I suppose even the, the few times when I was self-coach, I still had them on, on, on side and, and, and to provide that support. And, you know, they'd ask, ask the odd challenging question and, and, and that as well. So um, so I suppose that was my first experience of having that, that kind of team around me and and building up that level of trust and all the rest. And then in my coaching career, um, one of the athletes I would have worked with, um, I suppose, from her beginning in the sport, um, an athlete called Laura Reynolds. She was from the same or the next town from me at home in Leitrim. Um, and I was working with her from the age of 12 right to her teenage years um, and she qualified for the London 2012 Olympics and, and, and finished top 20 there so um, and again I suppose there was challenges there too in that we all were managing injuries and, and, and different um, I suppose health issues on and off down the years and, and, and trying to involve a, a wider multidisciplinary team there as well to try and navigate through those little challenges and um, so I suppose I, was, I had that coaching hat on there too and, 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 and having to interact with, with, the, with the team and um, you know try and use that then to to adapt to my coaching yeah and w- in, within that team environment so you're dealing with one athlete but they're part of a wider let's say athletics team uh d- is does that p- i'm trying to f- figure out is there challenges there in terms of do you have to adapt your coaching style to each person that you're dealing with or does a an athletic athletics coach have to have different hats on for for different people if that makes sense yeah i think you have to be uh, adaptable you know um and have to understand people and um, you might know CITI, like, you know, and that, look, that can be healthy as well once it's taken the right way. Um, you know, I think debate and disagreements occasionally are, are a healthy thing and it, it challenges you as a coach to be clear about your decision-making process and thought process and, and everything else. And um, it's also important then if you're bringing in the, you know, um, 
um, multidisciplinary team experts, you know, it's imp- and it's important that um, they're clear in their, in, their, in their message as well. I think the, the biggest problem I see when I'm working in both fields as, as, a, as a practitioner and as a coach is that sports science doesn't get translated well a, a, onto a coaching and athlete level or, 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 in, or in, a, in an applicable level. And, and, and I suppose academics tend to work in their own little atmosphere, in their own little domain and speak their language and as if they're talking to their peers. Coaches tend to not really respect them because they're not really in, in the trenches, you know, with stop pressure on their neck and, and, and making those tough decisions in, 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 the, in the heat of the moment. So I think that can be done better. And um, I suppose lines of communication both ways could, could start, certainly should, should be stronger, more open. Um, but I think trust has to be built up as well. And do you see yourself as a, a kind of a bridge between those two worlds? That's where I try to, to, to fill that gap as best I can. And I certainly haven't cracked it yet, but that, that's something with my PhD as well that I'm trying to... Um, trying to make better you know to try and make sports science more user friendly for the coach and athlete and take what's relevant because there's so much out there it, it can be a minefield you can you can collect all sorts of data but not not all of it may be relevant to the athlete and, and, and the event or sport they're in so um and it might not always be communicated well so you know the coach wants i suppose a simple message that they can translate to the athlete and minimize any extra i suppose cognitive resources that go into thinking and processing it okay so you're basically trying to look at all the research that's out there filter all the bullshit out yeah. and give a practical message that the coach can actually implement for their athletes. Yes, I think that's that's the ideal. Um, I suppose that's the ideal situation. I suppose that I know I made it should s- work. Yeah, I made it sound very simple there, yeah, but I'm far sure from it. Said, yeah, 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 said, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm far from having the, a full grasp of it yet, but that's something I want to try and uh, aspire towards. Okay, uh, well, when you do uh, crack it, we'll have to get you back on in here. Um, I want to go back to one thing you said. You said sorting out the big rocks and the small rocks. Can you expand a little bit on that? It's really something that's interesting to me. Yeah, um, I suppose to give my own example. Um, my biggest um, deficit in my, in my, in my, I suppose, um, athletic toolbox was was was, was my technique and biomechanics. Um, I probably and I suppose it was probably going back to being self coached in my late teens. There was a window there where I didn't have any. Uh, my, my my event like race walking was a technical event. Everyone knows that the rules and all the rest and three red cars and you're disqualified and so on. Um, and obviously there's two rules. One where you need to have one foot in contact with the ground all the time. The other rule is that your knee has to be straightened at the point of when your foot makes contact with the ground um, until your foot is under your hip. So I always had difficulty with the latter rule, the straight knee rule, never problems with the contact rule. So um, I didn't get my first qualifi- or disqualification until I was 21. Um, and I probably took it for granted that I was technically sound all through my teenage years when there was probably little things there that I could have been working on and refining. Um, so that when I got to my senior years when my training loads went up um, that I suppose I was able to bring good skills with me um, so biomechanics and I suppose the technical side of my sport was probably my biggest deficit um, I was quite good aerobically quite good in the S&C side of things um, reasonably good tactically in that too and that's probably something that I probably need a little bit more uh, one-on-one work 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 on and it's hard I suppose um, when you're working with a coach who's and again in athletics like most individual sports you know, most coaches are voluntary, you know, um, so it's very hard to actually have that um, one-on-one time um, that will be needed. Um, so I suppose that was my biggest deficit and that's probably something I would have, if I was to go back 15 years, um, I would have probably put more emphasis on and, and, and try to bring in that expertise and, and utilise it better. Okay. Um, you mentioned biomechanics a few times now. Uh could you maybe give a brief overview of the whole world of biomechanics just for people who uh, might be listening who may not have uh, as as big a background in it as yourself? Yeah, I mean, do you mean in my sport or in general? Just or in general. In general, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I suppose it's understanding how things move. Um, I suppose you look at 
if you're assessing biomechanics, there's three things you look at. There's the kinematics, which is how, say, the joint angles change. Um, so when you hit the ground, what, what your knee angle, ankle angle, hip angles are like, all that sort of stuff. Um, there's the kinetics, which is the force that goes through the body. Uh, and then there's like the space or temporal variables, like so, like your ground contact time, flight time, and so on. Obviously, flight time is, is, is minimal in my, in my event, but for runners, it's, it's, it's relevant and that's so. Um, so they're the things you look at. And um, there's, I suppose now I work in, in an area where I'm testing biomechanics a lot, um, whether looking at doing gait analysis on the treadmill or measuring, say, kinetics. Um, um, and other other variables doing like jumping and hopping tests um, and I suppose technology allows us now to, to give I suppose real-time uh, feedback there and then um, and that you can make a coaching change straight away um, but I suppose when I was um, working on that I was, I was using a lot of video analysis um, and just trying to understand my movement pattern and trying to mold myself into into a different movement pattern and I suppose I, I, I spent a lot of time trying to do it myself um, whereas and when I was working with coaches I suppose I was trying to utilize that but um, you know, I, I suppose if I had the resources that I'm that I work with now back then, I suppose things could have been different. But I suppose it's easy to go through the, the could haves at yeah. this stage in hindsight. So when you're working with athletes now in terms of their biomechanics, you are basically trying to make them uh, analyze their movements, but trying to make them more efficient or move better, basically. Yeah, move better, whether that's if you're, I suppose, a speed or power athlete to, to maximize your, your power output. Um, and, and speed and so on if you're a distance runner or a distance athlete you want to be more efficient and, and conserve energy and biomechanics can have a role in playing in that and then in terms of your in injury if you have an injury history or injury prone um certainly biomechanics can have an impact on that because you're putting you can be at the risk of putting additional load or, or extra load on, on a structure that, that that's not able to handle that okay so that strikes me that that would link very closely then into your work that you do as an snc coach absolutely yes so uh for let's say for people who are listening who are coaches at, at, at any sport I, I think this would be applicable to um so in terms of building athletes what would you say what was your what's your process if you can get someone from 13 14 and and, and start processing and start developing them what mm. would your sort of what's your basics and how would you build up from there yeah so you've got to build a profile of the athlete and, and see what the strengths are and obviously we must not neglect them because that's that's what got them to where they are and then you try and see what the deficits are and then what does their event require and what does good in their event require and how can you work back to where the athlete is now and identify those gaps so um you you know you can assess their physiology if they're a distance runner you know get them doing a um a lactate threshold and, and running economy test um, you could measure the VO2 max as well and then see what the physiological profile is like um, okay Colin just hold fire there yeah. for a second you mentioned a lot of things there now you're going to have to explain them a little <laughs> bit more for me yeah here's me there trying to simplify my message and uh, make sports science more uh, yeah, user friendly to the coach um, so I suppose lactate threshold so the point at which you are your body starts to accumulate lactate in the blood um, quicker than it can then clear it um, and obviously when that happens then you're starting to use more um, anaerobic sources for energy burn more glycogen and inevitably you're going to slow at some stage so the faster and the longer you can go without hitting that point the, the better you can sustain that effort you're going at and you're always trying to train that um, that quality um, running economy is how little oxygen you need or little energy you consume uh, at, at a certain speed um, so it's like miles per gallon um, again that can be measured um, by measuring your, 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 your oxygen uptake like, like doing a VO2 max test and then your VO2 max is like your engine size. So um, what's the highest rate of oxygen um, uptake um, that the athlete has? Um, but for longer events, like say 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon, lactate threshold and running economy are probably the most important things to measure. And um, 
you know so certainly if you want to improve your marathon time you want to be able to have your marathon speed as close as possible to your lactate threshold um, so that you're efficient in your running efficient at your energy consumption and so on so when you do cross it that it's as late on the race as possible that you're not going to to uh, have a have a um, slowdown or a decline in, in performance um, so I suppose that's one thing you can measure um, that's that's the physiology um, you can measure the strength and power um, so again having a few things you have to look at like um, you could do like a one or rep max or a three rep max um, strength test for your, your main lifts again sometimes endurance athletes that's probably can be a little bit risky too to come in there and do those those heavy lifts so what you might do maybe is, is get them to do like a an isometric um, squat or an isometric mid-thigh pull on a force plate um, where they just push hard against an immovable bar and you can see how much force they can produce and that can give you a rough idea of their of their maximal force capacity or if you want to go more joint specific and again I deal a lot with lower limb stuff like ankles calf muscles Achilles tendons so you can actually measure calf strength in an isokinetic machine um, and again there's numbers there that we like to hit that that would be um, good numbers and if someone is injured and they're, and they're below that well then we know we have something there to work on and then you can measure power doing like a, a counter movement jump or a vertical jump um, so you can measure their power and explosiveness um, how good they are in the downward part the eccentric part when they load up the spring and how good they are in, in, the, in the upper part and, and maybe where the limitation is there and then you can measure then like uh, their reactive strength or their plyometric ability by getting to do like a rebound off a box, re- rebounding at the force plate and see how quickly they can rebound and how, how high they can rebound. And we can do that double leg and single leg. Um, those are the small other tests we can do, but there, that's how we would kind of profile them. And then we'd look at their mechanics and see other obvious things that, 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 that stand out. Do they overstride? Um, you know, do they land with the foot too far in front of the body, which makes things, there's a lot more breaking going on on the lower leg, which isn't always a good thing. Um, do they spend too long on the ground? Because um, too long on the ground means muscles are working harder for longer. Um, and it might mean that certain structures are overloaded a little bit more than, than they should be. Um, how they swing the leg through, because again, every part of your running gait cycle, or as a race walker, or any type of movement pattern, every part of your cycle impacts on the next one. So how you carry the leg through determines how you hit the ground, how you hit the ground determines how well you can absorb those forces going through the body. So you'd pr- probably train, train, create a, a profile of the athletes looking at their physiology, their biomechanics, their strength and power, and then you see where the big gaps are then and, and, and try and focus on those as a priority. Okay, what the detail you're describing is absolutely fascinating. Um, and uh, I could spend another half an hour talking about each one of those, I suppose. I, I would love, though, it, so you have all these fantastic resources up there in uh, the sports surgery uh, clinic in Santry. If for any coach now who could be listening who uh, doesn't have those, um, doesn't have access to all those facilities, is there any simple messages or simple tips that you could give them that what they could implement th- themselves yeah um it's very hard i suppose to do a physiological test without being in that kind of lab environment or even t- having some of those tools that you can take out of the track or the road and, and, and measure so you, you could if you had access to a, a blood lactate machine it's small and portable you could you could you could do a lactate test out in the track in, in, a, in, a, in a field environment um i think if you've got a good eye for movement that you can certainly um assess or look at biomechanics uh, on your iPhone or, or, or smartphone uh, and there's different apps there that you can use to break down techniques so like there's Huddle is a popular one that's that's you can get a basic package that's free that you can do some lot, lot of things with and then if you want to go more specific um, you can you can buy certain subscriptions and so on and, and get extra bits out of it um, and there's some apps too that you can measure like jump um, some of those jump tests like a squat jump or a counter movement jump um, and um, 
I think it's called MyJump. Um, and again, it's quite a reliable and valid method. So you can you can certainly get some numbers there. Um, and again, once you know what those numbers mean, then you can you can certainly work with them and then and then retest again and, and and be able to get a measure of improvement. So with the phone, you mean like just literally recording somebody, uh, whether it be running or yeah. jumping or whatever, and then just slow-mo looking at it. Exactly, yeah. And once you know, once you're understanding what good technique is or what you want the athlete to do and, and, and maybe identify what they're missing or what they're, where they are now, um, you know, you can certainly use that in, in a very simple environment. Okay, uh, I think that's a really good tip that anyone yeah. listening could actually take away for any sport uh, uh, looking at technique. Um, I wanted to touch on uh, the altitude centre that um, you were involved with setting up. I think uh, you might describe, first of all, what it is sure. and uh, the benefits that we get from it. Yeah, so during my own competitive career, I spent a lot of time training at altitude in different parts of the world. Um, it always worked well for me. Um, going back to my childhood days, my mother, when she was competing as an international athlete, she would have spent towards the latter part of her career when she was building up to the marathon she spent a period of time training in in, in Colorado um, so that I suppose was where my first interest and curiosity in altitude training stemmed from so I suppose when I was in my early 20s I started to train um, with some of the other Irish athletes at different parts and as I said yeah most of my personal best performances were certainly coincided with, it, with a period of time at altitude in the lead up to it um, and then in latter years then I was using an altitude tent in uh, to supplement my periods of time in a natural altitude training camp environment and, and that worked well for me as well um, and I built up a good I suppose working relationship with a company in the UK called the Altitude Centre in London and while I was still based in the University of Limerick um, I suppose I was, I was trying to be I had that kind of I suppose in, innovative brain I was always thinking ahead you know and, and coming up with ideas and some were good and some were probably maybe easy to dismiss but I suppose I had the idea of, of why not have an altitude house um, on an, in a university campus that are ex- that's accessible to athletes um, so you can live at altitude um, in, in a house, in your living room, in, in your bedroom, um, live as high as you want and still train in your normal sea level environment. And um, I put a proposal together to the University of Limerick about 10 years ago. Um, it got the support and, and then eventually in 2012 it was opened and um, I suppose it's been used as, as, as a tool for elite athletes and also for research within university. So on the back of that then I was able to set up the Altitude Centre um, UK, their franchise in Ireland. Um, so my main role there would be to supply altitude training equipment like altitude tents, mask systems um, and then to be able to do install an altitude chamber in a gym or else um, if, if someone else wanted to to set up an altitude house on campus that we would be able to do that and then I do a lot of like consultancy work with mountaineers who are maybe training for uh, a high altitude climb so like Everest or you know Kilimanjaro would be, would be a common one of some of the other high altitude destinations um, so it's a, look it's a small niche market it's, a, it's I suppose more of a side venture I have on top of what I do um, but something I have a passion for and and um, I suppose um you know, and again, you know, we, we try to individualize an altitude protocol to the athlete because, again, everyone, everyone responds to altitude differently. OK, uh, could you give us a brief overview of the benefits of altitude training? Yeah, so it depends on the type of athlete you are. So if you're an endurance athlete, um, you want to improve your aerobic performance. And in order to do that, you want to spend a lot of time at altitude. So particularly you're sleeping at altitude and, and spending more time during the day there. Um, it's where you get your biggest benefit from. So either going away for three or four weeks, getting that 24 or 7 exposure or sleeping for maybe 12 hours a day at altitude. And if athletes have, I suppose, if their blood le- levels are quite good, um, they've got the tools there to produce extra red blood cells and increase their, their, their I suppose, oxygen carrying capacity. Um, not everybody gets those benefits, um, you know, so, but, but, but the big benefit is that it, it can improve your um, lactate threshold, as I just mentioned there, your economy. Um, and you can get those improvements without seeing any drastic changes in your blood. So some can respond quite well. Some maybe may not get those blood changes, but can actually get the performance changes. 
and again everyone's differently so the same protocol mightn't work for everybody um so again it's been able to individualize it to, to the athlete but and just the other thing too is just if you want to improve more anaerobic performance or like sprint performance doing more high intensity interval training in an altitude environment probably works best there so going to a chamber and doing your interval sessions there or um with an exercise mask system and um, would, would help to improve those th- help to improve the the buffering capacity of your muscles to handle high workloads and, and be able to um you know able to recover quicker okay so if uh someone responds well to the altitude training the idea being is that when they go back to sea level yeah that they'll be able to they'll still get the benefits from that altitude and be able to perform a little bit harder or exactly. a little bit faster or yeah a so bit it makes that sea level performance a little bit more efficient um that's the aim anyway okay because everything is harder when you exercise at altitude everything is harder but obviously when you're sleeping at altitude your, your heart rate is going to go up without even doing anything um so your body's always fighting that altitude stimulus at rest and then that when you do come out of it then it means that when you do anything at sea level um i suppose the body kind of everything kinda fe- feels a little bit easier i suppose in simple terms okay so as well as the physical benefits would athletes then um particularly in the athletics world would they feel then that that's that's another box that they're taking in terms of their mental preparation in terms of that they're doing everything that they can possibly do to to get a little bit better yeah because again i suppose if you look at other athletes how they prepare you know or east african athletes who, who dominate endurance running in events in athletics um um are born at altitude um you know so they grew up in that environment and then and, and then they still train there and then other athletes who maybe not who aren't from an altitude um environment would, would train at a lot of altitude so it is an important tool i think for endurance athletes um and certainly if it's done properly you can definitely um get that little bit of extra out of, out of your preparation and hopefully performance um and i know i mentioned mental preparation there and it's just one thing i, I, I would like to touch on um athletes they tend to have a, a cycle let's say for an olympics so they're building for four years towards one event um how important is that mental toughness and that mental preparation and perhaps resilience in terms of building for something like that yeah it's a challenge i suppose uh, i mean i never I, in the back of your mind you'd have that um four-year cycle but in our case and i suppose we always had one big event every year whether it's european championships world championships which are on this week um or you know and then the Olympic games every four years so it's always one big focus there but obviously you're, you're taking things year by year but you're probably in the back of your mind but not too obsessively thinking you know f- along that, those four-year cycles but definitely you know is trying to keep it keep it uh keep a grasp on, on the short-term stuff um so as i said there's always that one big event and i suppose me coming competing in an endurance event it's not like you can go out and race 50k or a marathon week in week out and um, you can only do it properly maybe twice a year well spread out um so there is a, that big long build up a lot of things can go well or not so well on the day that can that can scupper that i suppose so um and that requires a lot of mental preparation um good tactical preparation good execution of those tactics in a race being able to handle adversity when it comes and and being able to cope with that and being able to make adjustments if, if a, i suppose an unforeseen scenario um happens um so yeah look i mean that that's the mental side of things is definitely important um, is that something that you try and draw on your own experiences from t- when you're working with athletes now? Yeah, because again, from my own experiences, some things I handled very well. Um, I qualified for the 20, 2008 Olympics on my first attempt at a 50k race a year and a half out. I qualified for London Olympics on my last attempt, um, having after four, um, I suppose, failed attempts um, to different reasons, I suppose. So, and that, that built, I suppose, the more. As I got closer to London and, and as, as, as my, I suppose, the window started to narrow down a bit, it did create a lot of extra pressure. And, um, you know, so that, that did actually, I suppose, 
draw on whatever extra mental reserves I had to try and, and, and pull off that, that qualifying performance on, on, on the day. Uh, and I'm sure uh, athletes that you're working with now are, are happy that, that you're able to, to help them with that, st- that uh, type of mental the preparation. The big message was is like that you try to you try to either you know the Olympics is still just another race a world championship is still just another race you know the same as you've been doing all your career it just has a big tag on it so you either try to normalise that, that big event to just another race or else you try to um, you know make every training session and every low key race feel like, feel like that big race so that does, nothing becomes unfamiliar to you um, and yeah and I suppose competing in an endurance event like, like mine um, there's a lot of time to think and if something goes wrong you've, you've uh, you know um, it's very easy for, for, for negative things to set in so um, you know that was a big challenge and I suppose I tried to encourage athletes to work with them to, to approach things a little bit differently and I said to either normalise it to just a normal race or to replicate some of the, the pressure moments in, in training so that you're, you're almost immune to that kind of that, that stress or at least well prepared for it when, yeah. when it does come I think you have a, a fairly unique perspective as well coming from that uh, high performance elite uh, participation and bringing that knowledge and experience into your into the athletes that you're working with yeah um, Colin uh, we're running out of time um, we ask everyone three questions uh, at the end of the podcast uh, as I'm sure you're aware so before we'll jump in with the first one uh, what <coughs> does the term successful coach mean to you yeah I think somebody who at some stage in your career made a, a long lasting impact on you um, and it might necessarily mean you know contributing to winning medals or, or whatever else, uh, success you've achieved in, in sport but someone that you can say um, has an influence on what you do right now um, I think that, that's uh, that's a, a good legacy of a successful coach in, in my view okay. um, and again they may, they may not have been your lifelong coach or whatever else they may just have been involved at a certain stage made that impact um, that you'll that has resonated with you um, for, for a good number of years if not decades yeah, so impacting you as a person rather than just the actual sport itself. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a pretty good answer. Um, top book, resource, podcast, whatever to, that you would recommend for coaches. Um, top book, I suppose I've read. I suppose in the last year or so would be um, Conscious Coaching by Brett Bartholomew. Um, it's quite a deep book, um, heavy enough read, but I just like the way he's able to break down different personality types and different athlete types. And I suppose that makes you think how, as a coach, you might try to uh, work around them and adapt yourself um, and, and understand, I suppose, uh, those kind of nuances. Yeah, and it comes back to something you said earlier on about adapting your style for the different levels of athletes that you have coming into you in the clinic as yes, well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Last one, and you've been brilliant with your time, so thank you so much. Uh, your top tips for a developing coach? Ooh, um, again, I'm still a developing coach myself, but... Uh, I think just to, to have an open mind and think broadly and as I said try to be more of that um, master generalist who can take a step back and just see where everything kind of fits in and have an, a broad understanding of everything don't have to be an expert in everything but have a broad understanding of everything while having your own I suppose specialist areas whether it's your event or, or whatever and I suppose knowing knowing where things fit in the overall I suppose puzzle for the athlete um, so I think um, getting out there going to conferences reading reading outside your own domain maybe even working talking to other interacting with other coaches outside your sport if you get, even get a chance to work in other sports it's a healthy thing as well and something I've, I've tried to do um, and not to be fair to have a conversation with people who have made a totally different approach to you and have a, a healthy debate as well and, and you know understand their way of thinking and maybe try to um, try to back yourself too if you've got if you've got things you feel strongly about to be able to articulate them as well and and, and, and um you know, just to be to be um, 
be open minded. Yeah, and I think uh, you mentioned in terms of learning and stuff like that, and I think anyone who's l- looks at en- your career so far in terms of your education and, and you're still going back for more with the PhD, you can see that you, you practice what you preach. Uh, Colin, listen, thanks a million. We could sit here for hours. I'm fascinated uh, by a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. Um, I love the way you mentioned in terms of the self-coaching thing and how reflective you were in terms of yourself, adapting the communication that we talked about for different levels of athletes. Uh, I think a- anyone listening will have a huge, a much better understanding of some of the uh, sports science components that you talked about i really like the way you're trying to take the academic stuff and filter it down into practical uh take-home messages and i suppose making sports science more simple and accessible uh thanks very much for coming on thanks for listening to the coaching bubble and i hope you learned something to help you with your own coaching please follow us on twitter at bubble coaching where we'll put any books or resources mentioned on the show up on the page you can now subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify and soundcloud and feel free to get in touch with any feedback we'd love to hear from you As always, the show is produced by Niall Williams and the Coach Education Centre of the Camogie Association. Thanks for listening.